Welcome again to At Length. I'm Steve Scher. On this podcast, we speak at length with some of the authors, artists, activists, the thinkers who are shaping and commenting on the shape of our changing times. Resistance must become our vocation, writes Chris Hedges in his latest book, America, the Farewell Tour. According to the reporting and the bleak narrative of the book, we better start that vocation ASAP. Chris Hedges is a Pulitzer Prize-winning writer. He reported for 15 years for the New York Times. He is currently a columnist for the progressive news website Truthdig, among his other work. He is also host for the television program On Contact on RT, a Russian international television network funded by the Russian government. We spoke before he came to Seattle October 8th, 2018. So tell me, how is your America farewell tour going so far? Pretty hectic. Everybody wants to be on that last train out of Dodge, huh? People know something's wrong. I looked at the last line of the book, resistance must right. be our vocation. Max Faber, but of course, because we are responsible for the world those who come after us inhabit, and we're destroying that world. I was reading one of your columns that came out just recently. Hundreds of men and women in prisons in some 17 states are refusing to carry out prison labor conducting hunger strikes, boycotting for-profit commissaries in an effort to abolish the last redoubt of legalized slavery in America. Now, I know you travel with Brian Stevenson. You went to talk to Brian Stevenson, the civil rights leader. This is something he always is looking at. How is it that in America today we have this, the next step in Jim Crow? Well, because nothing's changed. It's protean. It, it, it mutates from slavery to the black codes to Jim and Jane Crow to lynching uh, to convict leasing uh, to mass incarceration. It it is a continuum. Donald Trump wants to uh, reduce the restrictions on methane gas. It's one of the efforts he's making to roll back whatever progress was made in uh, reducing greenhouse gas emissions. Is that the same thing? The same kind of never changing? No, that's a form of magical thinking because he's a climate change denier. It's a continuum in this sense that it's the primacy of short-term profit over the maintenance of, in this case, an ecosystem that permits the human species to survive. So the primacy of profit takes precedence over every aspect of life. Uh, We've seen it with the reconfiguration of American society into an oligarchy, uh, the predatory nature of capitalism uh, trumps the common good, uh, trumps uh, any sense of communal responsibility, and particularly to the vulnerable. That is the kind of ethos that we are all struggling to confront. Um, unfortunately, this kind of corporate cabal has seized all of the institutions, uh, including most of the media platforms, academia, uh, to render the citizen impotent. It's what the political philosopher Sheldon Woolen calls inverted totalitarianism. The magical thinking, as you called it, around climate change and the desire to hold on to the last few years of uh, extractive industries seems so self-destructive that it that it would even shock the people who are engaged in that magical thinking. Why doesn't it? There's two forms of magical thinking. There are the figures uh, 
around Trump who actually uh, they they deny that climate change is real, and then there are those who believe that we can adapt uh, to the monster storms, the droughts, the wildfires, the heating up of the planet, uh, the acidification of the ocean, the melting of the polar ice caps. They're equally forms of magical thinking. What happens in any society in distress is that it does retreat into self-induced fantasy as things become harder and harder to face, as things become bleaker and bleaker, uh, people retreat into a kind of fantasy world of their own creation. And part of that is a media that just doesn't report. I mean, they barely mention climate change. We have this monster hurricane. I mean, this is, you know, it's almost weekly Florence bearing down on the East Coast. They don't have a discussion of the nature of of our economic system, of corporate capitalism and how it works. These are just, they're never brought up. They're replaced with trivia and salacious stories about porn stars who are, you know, suing the president and porn stars, lawyers who want to run for president, and reality television show uh, stars like Omarosa who worked in the, I mean, it's just, it's like, uh, it's just court gossip and, uh, and it's it's entertaining, uh, but it's not news, and and that's part of the problem too. That we uh, have replaced our systems of information with systems of inter- entertainment. I want to I want to come back to the media and and the and who is and who is not reporting. But let me hold you to the the question of like where we're at today, since since America the farewell tour speaks pretty clearly to where you what you see happening. I think the first time I got a chance to talk to you was when you wrote, when you were touring for War is a Force That Gives Us Meaning. Has anything changed in those, what, 15 years? Yeah, it's gotten a lot worse. I mean, our democracy is atrophied, calcified, um, 17 years of warfare. It's uh, the endless feudal wars in the Middle East that have drained the national treasuries of trillions of dollars, uh, made us far less secure. Um, it is the most disastrous or strategic decision in American history, and also characteristic of late empires, the uh, Greeks invasion in, in ancient Greece, the the Athenian Empire invading Sicily and having their fleet destroyed, or the British uh, attempting to retake the Suez Canal after it was nationalized by Nasser and having to retreat in humiliation. This is a characteristic of late empire. They make these disastrous military blunders. The Soviet Union, for instance, in Afghanistan, were further down the road. I mean, I certainly in that book caution, and I had been the Middle East bureau chief for the New York Times, about the consequences of launching endless war, and all of those consequences have uh, come to pass. Why can't empires or the people who run empires read history as well, and uh, not follow the same destructive paths? Well, in, you know, if you look at the debates of, in the, even in the Senate, at the inception of the American Republic, these people were phenomenally literate. Uh, they knew uh, ancient history. They read Tacitus. But all of that is devolved. And all you have to do is look at what electoral politics has become. And it elevates, because it's been seized by corporate or oligarchic money, it elevates the immoral of the idiotic, um, those people who 
have a particular talent for charisma or entertainment and cravenly serve a system that is disemboweling the country and propelling the nation closer and closer to collapse. That's what happens when a cabal seizes power, whether it's monarchical or fascist or communist or, in our case, corporate. Uh, and that's why the, the, those people who read history, those people who understand are able to diagnose what's happening around them are shut out because that is detrimental to the accumulation of wealth by uh, a tiny elite that has seized control. I think I was listening to an interview you did and you were talking about, can't remember the city you were living in or you were staying in and you were living in a, you said it was called a Miami Beach-like in South America, but with uh, higher walls and more cortina wire on the walls. And then you could go out from that enclave and go into the to the favelas. I lived in Miraflores, which looks like Miami, except the walls are higher and they've got glass shards and concertina wire on the top. But you walk 10 blocks down the street, you have the Pueblo Sovenes where people are living next to open sewers without electricity or running water. And that's what the United States is becoming. Look, I'm in San Francisco. I walk out this hotel door. There are, and I'm on Market Street, the numbers of homeless, many of whom are mentally ill, dominate the sidewalk so much that I and other pedestrians just step into the street to walk. Every store here has security guards to keep these people out. Uh, and this is exactly what the third world looks like. You have these small, gated, protected enclaves for the elites, uh, and everyone else is thrown aside like human refuse. People can see it happening. Uh, the people who are most uh, benefiting from this system can see it happening. They may clutch their purses tighter and uh, try to hide their money more. Your argument is that in the end, they're not going to be able to hold on to that that wealth. Maybe they won't be able to hold on to that wealth. I guess that's my question. Do do the, Is that magical well, thinking? They, they, of course it is. They think they can retreat into gated communities where they will have access to services and uh, water and medical supplies and security that are denied to the rest of us. So they may last longer, uh, but just climate change alone, if it's not halted and nobody's doing much to halt it, is going to get us all in the end. The longer they live in those self-created bubbles, the more they disconnect from reality. And unfortunately, the people running the country uh, exist in uh, a state of their own creation, what a writer from the New Yorker called Richistan. Uh, they don't fly commercial airlines. They have no concept, you know, the, the mass of the population that is seriously suffering, maybe upwards of 70%. They don't get it. Um, they, uh, and yet they have the ability to make all of the decisions. So, uh, I mean, now there's a big, all the kind of uh, professional classes. And my hotel's right down the street from Twitter, uh, uh, are upset in San Francisco because there's human feces all over the sidewalks. Um, but it's not the, the uh, suffering of the transient population that is living on the streets, estimated bet anywhere between five and 15,000 people. It's the fact that when they step outside of their own little gated enclave, they're repulsed. Um, I mean, that's kind of how they look at their own. They want it cleaned up, but they don't they don't want justice. Uh, they just want it swept away. You have a quote at the beginning. You mentioned the earth. You mentioned these activities. You have a quote that starts the book, Walter Benjamin. 
Letter from Paris, 1935. On this planet, a great number of civilizations have perished in blood and thunder. Naturally, one must wish for the planet that one day it will experience a civilization that has abandoned blood and horror. In fact, I am inclined to assume that our planet is waiting for this. We're collapsing the way civilizations have always collapsed. Uh, Joseph Tainer, in The Collapse of Complex Societies, outlined the characteristics of collapsing societies, and we've ticked everything off the list. The problem is that when we go down this time, the whole planet's going to go with us. I got kids. I've got to fight. But at the same time, it does us no good to pretend uh, or, or to blind ourselves to what we face and how serious the situation is. Um, I mean, I'm not going to stop resisting. Um, that, that's kind of a moral imperative. But at the same time, I, 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 I don't think we, we have to stop pretending. We have just on climate change alone. We have no time left. No, I mean, even if we stop all carbon emissions today, we will still suffer catastrophic effects of climate change. And of course, we're not stopping the emissions. Jerry Brown in the very state you're in has just come out saying we're going to be have energy, renewable energy sources for California by 2045. Is he leading the charge? We're in such an impoverished situation that uh, someone like Jerry Brown, who actually acknowledges the reality of climate change, is considered a progressive. But I was down yesterday with all of the resistors to the summit who are arguing, I think, correctly uh, that we cannot turn to capitalist uh, enterprises, the very corporations that have degraded and destroyed the biosphere for a solution. That is really at its core what Brown is doing. Uh, and, and they're arguing that we have to reconfigure how we structure our society if we're going to survive as a species. And I think they're right. So you have uh, large numbers of protesters outside the climate summit uh, who come from all over the world, Brazil, indigenous communities from uh, the islands, nations, uh, uh, and, and uh, of course, they are these frontline communities of the poor uh, and uh, those in the global south who are bear- already bearing the consequences of climate change and are kind of the first victims. Uh, and uh, I-, I think they have a point. If we could change that formula, what would the new formula look like? Well, it would look like a world that doesn't kneel before the dictates of the marketplace, that understands that there are forces of life that have an intrinsic value beyond a monetary value, Uh, that there are things like water, which are sacred, um, and human life, which is sacred, Uh, and that uh, we have to uh, build a system that isn't about extracting profit, uh, but maintaining and protecting uh, uh, an ecosystem that gives life. Uh, so that means not cutting down the rainforest to grow soy uh, that the animal agriculture industry uses to feed livestock. Uh, it means uh, breaking the back of the animal agriculture industry, which is why I'm a vegan, uh, for, and it's for environmental reasons. Uh, it, it means understanding that what's most important now is is struggling to recreate a kind of balance with the ecosystem that allows us to exist. I mean, human civilization has only existed for 10,000 years at the end of the last ice age. We have a, a very peculiar uh, climate, I mean, like the Gulf Stream, uh, that hasn't always been part of the Earth at all. 
Um, in fact, uh, 10,000 years ago in the Northeast, uh, you had layers of ice that were eight times the size of the Empire State Building covering most of North America. Um, the, you know, the, the planet will go on without us, uh, but we better wake up uh, that, that we, have, we were given this kind of window, tiny window, uh, of, of peculiar climate conditions. And this is why climate scientists are so terrified of going beyond 2% Celsius because you trigger feedback loops. And they know what feedback loops are like because they've studied planets like Venus where it's 800 degrees and rain sulfuric acid. I mean, Venus used to have water. And, and, and of course, this isn't even part of the discussion. We don't even, this should, climate change alone should be a national emergency that public broadcasting should address nightly, but we don't even talk about it. I mean, the, the, the commercialization of the media means that uh, uh, we cover these monster storms like Florence, and we don't even mention climate change. You brought it back to the media, so I'll, I'll keep it there. Why do you think that's so important these days? People can get their news from all sorts of places, beyond information from all sorts of places beyond the what you call the corporate medias. It's not true because it's not remunerated. You can't do journalism anymore and get paid for it. I mean, I, I come out of the old journalistic, I come out of the old newspaper world. And that's what's so terrifying. You, if you're either going to dance to the tune that CNN or MSNBC or any of the Fox or anybody else plays if you want to like pay your rent, or you're going to be pushed aside. Uh, I mean, we see it with uh, the collapse of traditional journalism because the monopoly that newsprint once had connecting sellers with buyers is over. They all have our profiles. They, they get, we, because we give them all our personal information, they uh, can target us directly. They don't need, they don't need the press. No, and, no, but, uh, but, but you have places like, well, you have, you have local sources of news. You have the, the folks that the very folks that you're talking about that have organized, um, at the, at the climate summit, they're able to share and, and get their information out. Are they just speaking in a, in a big tin can or are they reaching the wider audience? Well, they're not reaching the wider audience because we're all siloed. And that's the left and the right. People go to websites or news sources that reinforce their own belief system. So if you're a member of the all right, you're reading Stormtrooper every day. Uh, it's uh, no, I think that there's been a kind of fragmentation of information. And I think too often information is sought out that reinforces one's belief system. Um, yes, we can get the information if you're proactive, but most people aren't proactive. Most people are, uh, or 90% of most Americans are uh, watching or listening to corporate-controlled junk, um, and uh, which is masquerading as news. So there's been a diminishing of the national discourse, uh, which has been disconnected from verifiable fact, which is very dangerous. You know, feeling good or being entertained takes precedence over knowledge. And then we haven't even discussed the whole collapse of the public education system, which is by design, uh, the loss of civics. I mean, people don't even understand how a government is supposed to work. Um, yeah, I mean, there's a lot of factors that have contributed to the kind of 
dumbing down of American society uh, and totalitarian systems, and I would argue we live in a species of corporate totalitarianism, do that on purpose. Because we're talking about journalism. I, you're still working for Russia Today, yes? Or you still work, have a show yeah. on Russia Today, right? Um, yes, I do. RT gets a rap that it's a propaganda arm of the Russian government. It also gets a rap. I was just reading an essay in a critical media compilation that said you could divide it in half. There's the uh, talk shows, which for the most part are un- unbothered by, uh, by any sort of control. And then there's the... Um, news outlets that seem to parrot Russian policies. How do you see Russia today in this ecosystem? Sure. I mean, it's, it, I know very well why the Russian government funds Russia today indirectly, uh, and that is because it gives a voice to critics of an empire that they're hostile to. Um, that is why Voice of America, the only fewer uh, a Czech who lived under communism, the only way you could hear Václav Havel was on Voice of America. That didn't mean that Havel supported the Vietnam War or American imperialism or American capitalism. In fact, I know he didn't because I knew him, but he had nowhere else to go. And that's kind of what's happened. Uh, I don't actually own a television, so I don't watch RT. I don't watch anything. I read. Um, I certainly can tell you with my show, which is was on Telesur before, and has always been designed to give a voice to critics of imperialism and capitalism. Nothing has changed. Um, I, I don't deal with Russia the few times that Putin has come up in a discussion. He's been described as an autocrat and, and Russian society as a kleptocracy and an oligarchy as asides. Um, I've never said a nice word about Donald Trump, obviously, um, so, I mean, but if they tried to impose that kind of uh, ideological rigidity on me, I'd quit, um, and they know it. <laughs> Does it bother you that you're on also with a news newscasts that seem very uh, one-sided? No, no, because, I mean, does it bother people that they're on, uh, who owns NBC, General Electric? I mean... You know, every all these corporations, all these entities that have the resources are all dirty in one way or another. I have to maintain my own integrity and the integrity of what I put out. Um, and uh, as long as that integrity is maintained and I'm given that space, I'll do it. And if they take it away, I won't. Any any media organization, including the New York Times, look, I worked for 15 years from the New York Times, and they blacklisted. Uh, the greatest intellectual in America and you know, my intellectual hero, Noam Chomsky. They never reported on Chomsky? They rarely quoted him? No, no, it, n- never. And and not only that, Abe Rosenthal imposed a rule that Chomsky's name was never to appear in the paper, even if it was about linguistics. And they, they did the same thing. They did the same thing to Ralph Nader. Well, how did he justify that? Do you know? Yeah, he was a rabid... You know, he was an, he had lunch every week with William F. Buckley. He saw these people as subversive, uh, even reporters like Sidney Schamberg, who was a friend of mine. You know, he called him my little commie because he wanted to report on what the developers were doing to uh, working class New Yorkers by pushing them out of their apartments to raise the rent. So, it, you know, and he uh, turned the paper into a neoliberal platform and advertising swelled and he made the paper money. Um, but to do it, he served those interests. Um, and, uh, I mean, I covered Central America. I wasn't with the Times then. And uh, he was vicious. 
in terms of uh, attacking reporters who he felt were not fighting or, or exposing the, the communism of the FMLN and the Nicaraguan Sandinistas. You know, back to that question. As a matter of fact, he got rid of he got he got rid of him. He fired him. Yeah, and he replaced him with a woman named Shirley Christian, who was a close personal friend of Oliver Oliver North. So I mean I work for the I work for the Times. I mean they're all uh, and uh, and and especially as someone who covered the war for five years in Central America, uh, I I knew what was going on. I I I knew what we were doing. I knew who the Contras were. I knew what who Rios Mont was, and and yet I worked for the Times. So I just think I I was responsible for maintaining my own integrity, but. Uh, I had problems with this elite newspaper and, and often the kinds of reporting that they did. And I'm sure I have the same with RT. I, I don't watch the news on RT. I listen to the BBC. I read the New York Times. I, um, but I'm sure that what you say is true. I don't have any doubt. Uh, and, um, but that's true in any media. Well, I was, that I've been involved with. I was thinking that there's a, there was a quote that you gave somewhere that said, nobody ever asked the M- MSNBC anchors or NBC reporters what it's like to work for a military contractor. Well, yeah, of course. <laughs> well, they, I think MSNBC is Comcast, isn't it? Yeah. Which is, which is, according to opinion polls, the most hated corporation in America. I mean, look, it, it's there just is no clean... No clean uh, enterprise, and I've done this for a long time. Uh, I, when I worked for the Times, I put myself in places like Gotha or Sarajevo uh, to report on the suffering of the people there, uh, and use the platform of the New York Times to amplify that suffering and what was being uh, done to them. Uh, and I did not run off and cover the State Department and become a friend of the secretary of state or go cover the white house. So the president would know my name. I mean, I, 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 I worked within those bureaus and covered those stories where I didn't feel that I would sell out. Let me ask you a question about two, just to wrap this, let me ask you a question about two things, stories you've covered and how they maybe lessons that connect them or, or ways to think about them both. You covered Sarajevo, as you said, and you and you went into some pretty dark places with some of the people who were fighting, both the Serbians and the uh, the the Croatians uh, and the or the Bosniaks. And you also covered the Occupy movement, which later you you reported a lot of the people in the Occupy movement sort of um, were blackmailed by the government uh, to um, to not speak out anymore. They were they were given felony charges that that you said were. Uh, specious but it sort of forced them to the sidelines is there any is there any is there any lesson or is there any connection to those two things about how we should look at this particular moment in the 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 dimming of the american empire well yes the the lesson is that the as the empire calcifies uh and the distress within it becomes more pronounced, those critics will be further marginalized. So you see uh, RT is forced to register as a foreign agent. You see algorithms imposed by Google, Facebook, Twitter, against left-wing sites, Black Agenda Report, Counterpunch, World Socialist Website, 
truth dig uh, to divert readers away, which is what the abolition of net neutrality is about, because the ideology of neoliberalism and global capitalism has no credibility across the political spectrum, and so those critics become more dangerous and therefore more of a target. Uh, and and uh, certainly in all of the uh, kind of authoritarian systems that I've covered in my career, my 20-year career abroad, um, the more unpopular that system became, the more those critics were persecuted, and we're replicating that. You know, you're not a fan of Antifa any more than you are of the of the right-wing groups that have risen up. You've talked about this idea of resistance. You've also talked about that when it succeeds, it's when the 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 levers of the state shift sides, right? The police no longer yeah, crack heads, that, for example. Well, no, they, they crack heads. It's, it's that a segment of yeah. the ruling apparatus defects. Then yeah. the, the, the apparatus is, becomes paralyzed. And that's not, I mean, I've seen it. I saw it in the revolutions in Eastern Europe. And, but that is also fundamental to all of the theorists who write about revolution, Crane Brinton, Jeffrey Davies, and others that no revolution succeeds until a significant portion of the ruling apparatus is no longer, and these are the foot soldiers, usually the police or the Russian Revolution, the Cossacks, are willing to enforce, to use the iron fist to protect the regime. I mean, you look at Central or Eastern Europe now, and we see this slide back. You look at what happened in Russia. You look at what happened to the yeah, labor because, movement. Because, because they equated democratic freedom with a free market. And uh, and so that you know the rise of their authoritarian figure figures like Orban in Hungary replicates Trump or uh, uh, Nigel Farage or Boris Johnson in Britain or we just saw elections in Sweden uh, that is the wreckage of neoliberalism and so unfortunately they made courtesy of Chicago School they were destroyed I mean I was just in Poland and like Hungary Poland is a kind of quasi fascist country at this point. I mean, they just destroyed their judicial system. Um, so uh, this is global, uh, and, and we are also suffering from it. You know, that, that is the tragedy of what happened in Eastern Europe, uh, is that they embraced an economic system that perpetuated grotesque inequality. And whatever you thought of communism, it had a great uh, educational system, uh, I mean, part of the reason uh, corporations race to Czechoslovakia is because it was a highly educated population, uh, and, which, and it was free education. Uh, Charles University was a great university. I mean, I'm not defending the communist regime in uh, Czechoslovakia. Uh, you had, uh, you know, the arts were supported. There were theaters everywhere. Uh, there were, I used to go to the opera when I lived in Zagreb, or I'd go to Hungary, it was $10 a ticket, they were all state employees, so there was a, a, a sense of culture, there was free medical, um, you know, and those were good aspects of those societies, but when the free market came in, they were destroyed, like everything else, and you created the kind of social inequality and concentration of wealth that is now manifesting itself in very unsavory political ways. Can you imagine in America taking a step towards uh, a different approach? Uh, you can imagine it, but can you actually uh, see that way through? I mean, this is we're talking about a politics that's rooted in a different set of values. Do we have the capacity yeah, to embrace those values? 
I can't answer that question. I just know we have to try. All right, sir. I'll leave it there. Sure. Thank you for doing it. Thank you. Chris Edges, his book is America, the Farewell Tour. You can find links to his book and some of his other work at our website, thehouseofpodcasts.com. Just search for At Length with Steve Scher. Thank you for listening to this podcast. More interesting conversations to come. Most of the guests on this podcast this season are appearing at Town Hall Seattle, and this podcast is supported in part by Town Hall. If you have thoughts, comments, questions, queries, write me, s-s-c-h-e-r at gmail.com. I'd like to hear what you think. And thanks for listening to At Length.